Here we go, brand new edition of Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning. Hi, everybody. Steve Cashel, joined by my co-host back again this week, Dr. Brian Cole, sports medicine specialist from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, also head team physician with the Chicago Bulls and one of the team physicians with the Chicago White Sox. Doc Cole, how are you? Steve, doing great. Excellent. Awesome to be here with you. I want to thank Dr. Nick Verma for filling in the last two weeks. Yeah. And now you're back with us for a couple weeks in a row. Nick always does a good job. He does. I, I listened to both those shows. It was all, You guys together are, are terrific. <laughs> well, you do a great job as well. It's good to have you back in the chair. Doc, a lot to do in this show, uh, but I want to start with this. This is a kind of a hot injury right now. USC, the Trojans, one of the biggest college football programs in the history of the NCAA, loses their sophomore quarterback, their starter, last week, JT Daniels, missing the rest of the season after tearing the ACL and meniscus in his right knee during last Saturday's win against Fresno State. He'll undergo surgery in the next few weeks. So my question is, uh, how frequently is the meniscus also affected with an ACL tear? Steve, it's pretty common, and what's interesting, and I would say it's up to two-thirds or more have some type of meniscal tear, but it doesn't always affect the post-op rehab or the recovery. But the thing that's important for people to understand is that we try to say, well, there's an ACL injury. The time to get back is 6, 8, 12 months, whatever. Um, that is just one component of it. So people have to be really sensitive to the fact that it's hard to draw conclusions from athlete to athlete because it's not just the ACL that's torn. In most instances, there can be a meniscal tear, and that can have an impact in terms of recovery. In fact, even if we repair these, it can lead to a situation where they uh, can tear again. So we try to do our best to predict the likelihood of an athlete getting back, which you know, all things being equal, no matter what happens in association with an ACL tear, we do pretty well getting an athlete back, maybe 95% or better. But the length of time or the risk of re-injury and all those things do factor in. So that's why we have to be quite careful about just saying, well, so-and-so has an ACL tear, fix it, get it back in X amount of time, because it adds so much variability when the meniscus is involved. Break that down. I know you're on radio here, but tell us ACL compared to what the meniscus is. Yeah, so the ACL is a ligament, the anterior cruciate ligament. It's in the center of the knee, and it keeps the tibia, the shin bone, sort of attached to the femur or the thigh bone. And the meniscus is a C-shaped cartilage. So there's ligaments, right? That's the ACL. And then there's cartilage, which is the meniscus, and there's one on the inside and the outside. Ligaments can connect bones? Ligaments connect bone to bone, and a meniscus is sort of like a, a, a gasket between the tibia and the femur that not only adds to stability, but also adds cushion, if you will, between the two bones. And when torn, can increase the risk of arthritis, can increase the risk of downstream problems, and change the post-op recovery. So the meniscus is cartilage, and the ACL is ligament, and they often occur together up to two-thirds or more of the time, and when managed properly, can return an athlete back to play, but does add quite a lot of variability to that return. Moving on here on Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning, Dr. Cole got an interesting guest. How many uh, former athletes have you worked on or been associated with that um, wind up going to medical school? Oh, Steve, those are, I mean, you think about the statistical probability, it's hard enough to get into medical school, so that's like, you know, 0. 0.0001, and then take a professional athlete and you multiply the two for them both to happen, that's, you, you might as well buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> I have one, I have one friend who, uh, was a professional skier, and uh, he's in uh, uh, Park City, Utah. But I'm going to tell you, it's extremely, very, very rare. And I have plenty of players who think they're doctors. Yes, okay? of course. When we uh, have issues <laughs> in the training room, and I've learned a few things from some players, but uh, it's pretty rare. Well, let's bring on uh, Emmett Cleary. And uh, Emmett uh, grew up in Arlington Heights, St. Vider High School. Played football there. Also played at Boston College, and then he played seven. 
Uh, for seven NFL teams, including the New York Giants, Dallas Cowboys, Detroit Lions, over a five-year NFL career. He's now a second-year medical student at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. He's at USC. Emmett, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Wow. So we want to learn all about the, the transition from playing in the NFL to going to medical school. But, Emmett, let me ask you a question. In college, you know, college as a football player is brutal. And most of the times they don't take majors like a hard science and things like that. In fact, most of when I went to the University of Illinois, most of our my pre-med classes were, were the psych classes were full of the athletes, you know, just because it was so difficult. <laughs> I mean, it was such a difficult, I mean, just for me, I had very few distractions sport-wise, you know, and I could do it on my own. You had, you were a uh, biology major, right? I mean, yeah. how, just with all the travel and all the commitment, what, what what did you do to get the grades you needed? And obviously then you had to take MCATs. Did you take MCATs after the NFL or did you take it before? I, I took it after my uh, senior year of college. Okay, so you stayed on course and then you went to the NFL. Yes. I mean, what is the secret? If I have a lot of students who come through, do years of research, try to get into medical school. Uh, keeping the grade point up is brutal when you don't have football. You add football into the equation. I, I honestly can't even imagine. You know, what's your secret? Uh, part of it, um, sad to cut some corners at some points in the fall. Um, sure. You know, you're working 60 and 70 hour weeks, so you're just not going to have the time to be in the book as much as uh, as much as a lot of your classmates. Um, you know, you obviously I'd make up some labs in the spring. That's kind of I would load my schedule in the back end during spring ball. Um, but it showed. I mean, my GPA was not, you know, commensurate with how I did on standardized tests. And it, it really just the time is what takes it out of you. Did you so did you have this game plan laid out that, hey, I'm going to keep playing football after college, but uh, I'm going to sort of get to the point where I could apply to medical school with the MCAT and everything else? Yeah, honestly, I've wanted to be a doctor since probably before I was playing ball. Um, mm. Way back when, kind of always thought that this was uh, the big picture goal and football kind of happened for me after that you know i got uh got good and realized i might have a chance at it so um uh went in as a biology major um did well enough to have a chance and then um you know football was kind of tough to turn down so i played yeah. for five years and then um always had this in the back of my head though did you have to retake the mcat again or you could still use your score from before you started playing in the nfl uh, I did not. So I, I uh, took the test in, it was the old one. It was a four hour exam yeah. uh, in July of 2012. Um, and then actually applied during the, uh, the 14, 15 application cycle. Um, so initially got in to be a, a member of the uh, 2015 class here, uh, first year class. Um, and then deferred three oh, times. Perfect. So that's that's, that's awesome. not how I would suggest everybody do it. Right. But, um, well, I the was fact not that they, to... yeah, they let you do that, that's amazing. Then you know you've got something in the bag because going back to it again would be brutal. Oh, my God. I couldn't imagine sitting that eight-hour desk now. You know, I'm, I'm kind of staring down studying for the boards next spring, and that, that, it's been a while. Busy with Emmett Cleary, former NFL player, now attending medical school at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. I'm Steve Cashel with Dr. Brian Cole. So what you learn, Emmett, about uh, your football career that may have influenced your decision to uh, retire from the NFL and then uh, go into the medical practice? Um, I mean, I, I kind of always wanted to get into medicine, but uh, you're, you're saying in terms of when I decided to hang it up? Well, what did you learn? I mean, uh, did you know, you paying close attention to the team docs in that when you were playing? 
Oh, I was. Um, I was lucky in that I never had any major reconstructions or anything. Um, you know, I was kind of always dealing with, you know, chronic fingers and ankles and low back and stuff, but um, never had the big ones. So I was I was fortunate in that way. Um, but yeah, you, you do pick up little pearls, you know, the, the human body is just an amazing machine and, and kind of learning how to keep everything um, in good working order and kind of fine tuned uh, is, is part of the job of being an athlete. So, um, you know, the more you can understand your own machine, the better off you're going to be in your own career. So uh, I picked up a ton of stuff. Now, having been at this for about 14 months, I, I feel like I would have been a, a much better professional just just knowing what I know now about kind of the the, the functions of your body, but um, yeah, I, I I thought it was amazing. What uh, you so when you were the, with the Giants, you probably met Russ Warren. I my, my yeah. guess, yeah. So Russ, I, tra- yeah, I, I trained in New York in special surgery. So Russ was probably one of the greatest mentors I ever had. And oh, I mean, to they, cover the they Giants talk about games. him out here too. Yeah. yeah, and then you probably had Dan Cooper in uh, Dallas. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Also a great team doc. Um, yeah. What did you? Would you? What? What do you want to be when you grow up? When you're done with all this? I, I, I know you have an interest in neuroscience. Are you interested in neurosurgery? Uh, I, I think that stuff is fascinating. I'm not sure I want to do it as a career. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 29. Neurosurgery is like a 10 year yeah path. So I'm, I'm trying to work again before I got to retire again. Yeah, I understand. Um, I can but, tell you, uh, I was I was 34 when I first, first paid taxes, just to give you a sense, okay? And uh, I didn't and geez. I didn't and I didn't have the break that you had, so exactly, you're right. You'd be yeah. pushing 40 by the time <laughs> you get to cut skin, you know? Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've I've kind of been in on a couple of those procedures, and those are those are some of the most brilliant people on earth. But uh, it's just a long road. What are you thinking if you had to pick? I know it's still you don't have to pick this early, you, you know. But I'm just curious. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, the the differential is pretty wide right now. I I, I like surgery. Um, I every time I find myself in the OR, I really enjoy it. Um, you know, I like the gross anatomy lab. I like uh, doing procedures, working with my hands. Um, emergency medicine is a really strong program out here, and I've I've given that a lot of thought too. But uh, you know, I I don't know. I I got to get on the wards in about a year and see what I like. Yeah, you just you know you keep an open mind. You go through the rotations, and you never what know what might strike your strike your level of interest. If you're if you're ever in Chicago, and you're you know you're, is your family in Chicago? They are. Yeah. Uh, everybody's uh, my family's in Arlington Heights, and still got um, a brother who's actually going through it right now, applying to medical school. He lives on the North Side, so I'm back awesome. a lot. Well, if you ever want to observe or shadow, and you know they have a a, a, de- a very good orthopedic program at USC. I know a lot of those guys, but. If oh, you yeah. think it's something of interest and you're back in Chicago, we'd love to have you come visit. I'd love to. Yeah, I, I shadowed actually with a with a Dr. Weber out here who uh, oh, he, yeah, he lectured him. a bit yeah. for us. Oh, yeah. Trained, uh, yeah. we, we trained him here. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, Alex, great. Alex Weber, yeah. great guy. Yeah, yeah I think with, he handles uh, football out there. Yep. Visiting with Emmett Cleary. Emmett, former NFL player, now attending medical school at Keck in Southern Cal. Emmett, I know what the parents want to ask you. Uh, any regrets about playing football? Numbers are down across the board. I was visiting with someone who... Uh, Yesterday, a neighbor who said, boy, you know what, our freshman class in high school, 23 players. What advice do you have for the kids, the parents out there worried about CTE and uh, getting injured, uh, the, the concussions, the, the head injuries uh, from what you've learned in your playing career? I think the risk is uh, substantial. You know, it's, it's more and more data is coming out, and, um, you know, you, you do kind of need to uh, look at your participation with a critical eye. Um, I, I'm kind of encouraged, you know, to see people giving like youth flag football a chance. I, 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 you know, having played at a high level, I, I don't think much is gained from playing full tackle football in second grade. You know, there's not a whole lot of guys that like 
the difference between making it in the NFL is, you know, whether you played and started in kindergarten versus first grade. Um, so I, I, I am a little encouraged by the fact that uh, kids aren't getting their heads hit as, as often as very young players. Um, that being said, I mean, football is one of the best things that ever happened to me. So, uh, you know, as, as, as you need to be aware of any, any kind of chronic health risk, you know, you uh, take the information for what it is and, and make your own decisions with the best information you have. Um, but great experience for me. By the way, Emmett, our guest is going to be on the uh, panel for our Chicago Sports Summit happening October 2nd from 8 a.m. till noon at the Hyatt Regency Chicago. He'll be on the panel of Should College Athletes Be Paid? I'm going to be one of the moderators. And Dr. Cole, I know, uh, is going to be uh, you moderator too, Doc? I'll moderate. Uh, I'm going to actually be on the panel, panel for oh, wow. sports science, I think. Okay. Um, it's a really good event this year. We have four amazing panels, and um, we all look forward to meeting you in person, and we appreciate you taking the time, especially being in medical school. Being able to, I think all you know, a lot of our panelists are extremely busy, and there's lots of challenges for them to come do it, but I'm going to say that you probably will have the biggest challenge leaving in the midst of uh, a semester, so we, I really appreciate you coming to do this. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. And tickets can be uh, purchased at chicagosportsummit.com. Again, October 2nd, folks. It is outstanding. I've been to the last couple of them and uh, have helped MC and moderate uh, last year's. Be on the panel again uh, this year, helping moderate. But again, October 2nd, 8 a.m. till noon in Hyatt Regency, Chicago. Something you don't want to miss. Some big names there. And we're going to have a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Emmett, for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Steve, Dr. Cole, appreciate it. All right, Emmett Cleary. Let's take a break. When we come back, Doc Cole and I with our staple of the show, our Ask the Doctor segment. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly only on 670 The Score. Emmett, thanks a lot. Great job, Emmett. Yeah, thanks, guys. That was nice. Thank you. Have a great, have a great afternoon. We'll see you in about a month. Good luck. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you guys in October. You got Alrighty. it. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Back here on this Saturday morning, Sports Medicine Weekly. It is Steve Cashel and Dr. Brian Cole. And that proceeds from our show, Sports Medicine Weekly, go to support orthopedic research at Rush through the liveactivenow.org fund. Our producer, Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Tracy Toro. And our website is sportsmedicineweekly.com. And you can go to that website to be involved in our next segment here on Sports Medicine Weekly. It's our Ask the Doctor segment. We do it each and every Saturday in our 30-minute show. It's very easy for you to get involved. Just go to our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com, and on the homepage, you will see the picture of Dr. Cole and yours truly. Click on the link, and you can ask the doctor a question. Ready for a couple quick questions here, Doc? I'm all in. A couple good ones right here. All right, first question. Is there a cutoff, Dr. Cole, a cutoff age to start a workout program. I am in my mid-70s, this listener tells us, and have never had much of a fitness regimen, but otherwise I'm pretty healthy. I would say there is no cutoff. I think there are there are areas that can become concerning in terms of the potential for injury or overuse injury and so forth, and it's important for people to know that as we age, how our body responds to exercise and strength and conditioning can be more variable. Uh, and our nutritional needs vary as we age. For example, our metabolism is slower. We don't process protein in the same way. Recovery can be more challenging. Uh, the other issue is making sure as we age there are other diseases like cardiovascular disease that can 
creep in just that are age-related, for example, are the kinds of things that you would have more on your radar. So I would say, look, if someone's in their 70s and in beginning wants to begin in a, in a, a, a regular exercise regimen, first I would congratulate them, I would encourage them, and I would say that it is not improper to at least have a baseline evaluation by their primary care doctor. Maybe that's something they do all the time. But they will be experiencing, for example, increases in heart, sustained increases in heart rates and so forth and exertion, which is some, it's like a stress test. And as long as their heart, for example, is in good condition, they should be able to tolerate it just fine. But it's important uh, that they have a higher sort of level of acuity to evaluate for underlying medical illnesses. But you can, it's never too late. You can always build muscle mass. Be mindful the nutritional needs are different. They, they differ as we age. Um, our metabolism is much slower. The risk of muscle strains and injury is obviously a lot higher. Our balance is different. But do, done in a proper way, in a proper setting, I would say it's never too late, and it becomes increasingly important as we age. Great question. Great answer. Question number two. Okay, this is interesting. Can hydration be the make or break factor in an outdoor sport? This is a fascinating area because most people think about hydration as something that you do after you exert yourself, right, as part of immediate recovery. There was a great uh, recent study that was uh, what what happened in uh, Boise State when, during the uh, Florida State opener to simulate sweltering conditions. What the Boise officials did is they hosed down the field, hosed down the players, and they cranked up the heat in the Kevin Williams indoor facility during practice. And what happened was, the ironically, the FSU players had cramps and heat-related issues and so forth all afternoon while the Broncos, uh, the Boise State Broncos, uh, appeared to be the team that had practiced in the natural Florida heat. And that's because they were hydrated, not just in, in, in preparation for that, but that they had proper hydration throughout the course of the week. That's so, a big thing, right? Yeah, so the, the take-home is you, you got to stay tanked up. You know, you don't wait for a high-level exertional event to dehydrate you. You stay tanked up the entire time, and, and that way you're not behind the eight ball when you're trying to catch up. That's a much more appropriate, better way that's sustainable uh, when you're dealing with hydration. You just, you're always hydrating, especially when you're engaged on an ongoing basis in a high-level sport or high-level strength and conditioning. Yeah, I'm reading here uh, Tracy Tarrell doing some, uh, our coordinating producers, some research for us. 100 student-athletes from two different NCAA Division I universities, summer football conditioning, surveyed to identify the fluid and hydration knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors, and demographic data, uh, primary football position, the nutrition education, and barriers. Only 24% of the players reported drinking enough fluids before, during, immediately after, and two hours after practice. So, you know, that's what I tell our kids, um, you know, when I'm helping coach. I've always learned this, Dr. Cole, tell me if I'm wrong. If you're already thirsty, it's too late, right? It certainly makes it hard because when your thirst meter goes off, you know that your brain is connected and giving you that signal. So you're right. It can be very hard to catch up. So that's, that's a great point. There's no downside to staying hydrated on a regular basis. And as I say, even before high exertion practices and games, do it during the course of the week. I mean, you basically, you and I should probably be drinking a gallon of water a day. Yeah, you know? don't they say half your weight in ounces? I think we've, we've yep. learned that before, mm -hmm. right? That's correct. It seems like so much, but it's not it's hard. Not. You start it early and you continue yeah, on, Yeah, just right? always have a you know, reusable you know, water container with you and just refill it three, four times a day and you're good to go. All righty, question number three, last one of the show, okay? Dr. Cole. This listener asks this, will stretching help me get stronger? You know, we've done a lot on stretching, static and dynamic stretching and so forth, but the one thing that we know from 
some recent research is that stretching really does enable your muscles to achieve full range of motion during strength exercises. So if you have greater function, then you're going to get much more out of what you're doing from a strength and conditioning point of view. So I would say yes, and that's why dynamic warm-ups, functional exercises are really important before you start doing strengthening type exercises because the longer the motion arc across the joint, the more the muscle has excursion, the ability to lengthen and contract, the better the response will be to some lifting or strengthening maneuver. So I would say, yes, stretching can help you get stronger. Got to be done properly. Uh, We generally are not emphasizing static stretching just before working out, but rather dynamic stretching, what we call movement preparation, Steve, where you're doing some type of dynamic exercise to increase blood flow, increase flexibility before you do high-level exertion and strengthening. So stretching is super important uh, before you do strengthening exercises. Great stuff. We are out of time for this edition of Sports Medicine Week. Many thanks to our producer, Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Tracy Taro. Also want to thank David Cole for managing our website and our business operations, as well as Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. For Dr. Brian Cole, I'm Steve Cashel saying so long, and thanks for listening to Sports Medicine Weekly. Coming up next on The Score, Early Odds with Joe Ostrowski. Talk with you again next week for a brand-new edition, 8 a.m. Central Time, only on 670 The Score.